Chapter 17. Inefficiency. I stopped for a moment to listen to an argument in the Mile End Waste. It was night-time, and they were all workmen of a better class. They'd surrounded one of their number, who was a pleasant-faced man of thirty, and were giving it to him rather heatedly. "'But how about this here cheap immigration?' one of them demanded. "'The Jews of Whitechapel say are cutting our throats right along.' "'Well, you can't blame them,' was the answer. "'They're just like us. They've got to live. "'Don't blame the man who offers to work cheaper than you "'and gets your job.' "'Yeah, how ah, about a wife and kiddies?' "'His interlocutor demanded. "'Yeah, well, there you are,' came the answer. "'How about the wife and kiddies of the man "'who works cheaper than you and gets your job, eh? "'How about his wife and kiddies? "'He's more interested in them than in yours. "'He can't see them starve, "'so he cuts the price of labour and out you go. But you can't blame him, poor devil, he can't help it. Wages always come down when two men are after the same job. You know, that's the fault of competition, not with the man who cuts the price. Yeah, but wages don't come down where there's a union, the objection was made. Yeah, well, there you go again, right on the head. The union checks competition amongst the labourers, but it makes harder where there are no unions. That's where your cheap labour of Whitechapel comes in. They're unskilled, and they have got no unions, and they cut each other's throats, and ours into the bargain, and if we don't belong to a strong union, that's what's going to happen to us. Well, without going further into the argument, this man on the mile-end waste pointed the moral that when two men were after the one job, wages were bound to fall. Had he gone deeper into the matter, he would have found that even the union, say 20,000 strong, could not hold up wages if 20,000 idle men were trying to displace the union men. This is admirably instanced just now by the return and the disbandment of the soldiers from South Africa. They find themselves, by tens of thousands, mind you, in desperate straits in the army of the unemployed. There's a general decline in the wages throughout the land, which, given rise to labour disputes and strikes, is taken advantage of by the unemployed, who gladly pick up the tools thrown down by the strikers. Sweating, starvation wages, armies of unemployed, and great numbers of the homeless and shelterless are inevitable when there is more men to do work than there is more than there is work for men to do. And men and the women that I've met upon the streets and in the spikes and the pegs, they're not there because as a model of life it may be considered a soft snap. I have sufficiently outlined the hardships which they undergo to demonstrate that their existence is anything but soft. It's a matter of sober calculation here in England that it is softer to work for twenty shillings a week and have regular food and a bed at night than it is to walk the streets. The man who walks the streets suffers more and he works harder for far less return. I've depicted the nights they spend, and how, driven in by physical exhaustion, they go to the casual ward for a rest-up. Nor is the casual ward a soft snap. To pick four pounds of oakum, break twelve hundred weight of stones, or perform the most revolting tasks in return for the miserable food and shelter which they receive, is an unqualified extravagance on the part of the men who are guilty of it. On the part of the authorities, it's just sheer robbery. They give the men 
far less than their labour than they do the capitalist employers. The wage for the same amount of labour performed for a private employer would buy them better beds and better food and more good cheer and, above all, greater freedom. As I say, it's an extravagance for a man to patronise a casual ward, and that they know it themselves is shown by the way in which these men shun it till driven in by physical exhaustion. So why do they do it? Well, not because they are discouraged workers. The very opposite is true. They are discouraged vagabonds. In the United States, the tramp is almost invariably a discouraged worker. He finds tramping a softer mode of life than working. But this is not true in England. Here, the powers that be do their utmost to discourage the tramp and the vagabond, and he is, in all truth, a mightily discouraged creature. He knows that two shillings a day, which is only fifty cents, will buy him three fair meals and a bed at night, and leave him with a couple of pennies for pocket money. And he would rather work for those two shillings than for the charity of the casual ward, because he knows that he would not have to work so hard, and that he would not be so abominably treated. He doesn't do so, however, because there are more men to do work than there is work for men to do. And when there are more men than there is work to be done, a sifting-out process must obtain. In every branch of industry, the less efficient are crowded out, and being crowded out because of inefficiency, they can't go up, but they must descend and continue to descend until they reach their proper level, a place in the industrial fabric where they are efficient. It follows, therefore, that, and it is inexorable, that the least efficient must descend to the very bottom, which is the shambles wherein they perish miserably. A glance at the confirmed inefficiency at the bottom demonstrates that they are, as a rule, mental, physical and moral wrecks. The exceptions to the rule are the late arrivals, who are merely very inefficient and upon whom the wrecking process has just begun to operate. All the forces here, and it must be remembered, they're all destructive. The good body, which is there because of its brain, is not quick and capable, is speedily wrenched and twisted out of shape. The clean mind, which is there because of its weak body, is speedily fouled and contaminated. The mortality is excessive, but even then they die far too lingering a death. Here, then, we have the construction of the abyss and the shambles. Throughout the whole industrial fabric, a constant elimination is going on. The inefficient are weeded out, and they are flung downward. Various things constitute inefficiency. The engineer, who is irregular or irresponsible, will sink down until he finds his place, say, as a casual labourer, an occupation irregular in its very nature, and in which there is little or no responsibility at all. Those who are slow and clumsy, or who suffer from weakness of body or mind, or who lack nervous, mental and physical stamina, must sink down, sometimes rapidly, sometimes step by step, all the way to the bottom. Accident, by disabling an inefficient worker, 
will make him inefficient, and down he must go. And the worker who becomes aged, with failing energy and numbing brain, must begin the frightful descent which knows no stopping place short of the bottom and death. In this last instance, the statistics of London, well, they tell a terrible tale. The population of London is one-seventh of the total population of the United Kingdom, and in London, year in and year out, one adult in every four dies on public charity, either in the workhouse, the hospital, or the asylum. And when the fact that the well-to-do do not end this way is taken into consideration, it becomes manifest that it is the fate of at least one in every three adult workers to die on public charity. As an illustration of how a good worker may suddenly become inefficient, and then what happens to him, I am tempted to give you the case of McGarry. He's a man, 32 years of age, and an inmate of the workhouse. The extracts are quoted from the annual report of the trade union. I worked at uh, Sullivan's place in Widnes, better known as the British Alkali Chemical Works. I was working in a shed, and I had to cross the yard, and it was ten o'clock at night. There was no light about, and while I was crossing the yard, I felt something take hold of my leg and screw it off, and I just became unconscious. I didn't know what became of me for a day or two, and on the following Sunday night, I came to my senses, and I found myself in the hospital, and I asked the nurse what was to do with my legs, and she told me both legs were off. There was a stationary crank in the yard and led into the ground, and the hole was 18 inches long, 15 inches deep and 15 inches wide. The crank revolved in the hole three revolutions a minute, and there was no fence or covering over the hole. Since my accident, they've stopped it altogether, and they've covered the hole up with a piece of iron sheet. They gave me £25. They didn't reckon that, as compensation, they said it was only for charity's sake. Out of that, I paid £9 for a machine by which I have to wheel myself about. I was labouring at the time, and I got my legs off. I got 24 shillings a week, rather better pay than other men, because I used to take shifts. And when there was a heavy work to be done, I used to be picked out to do that. Mr. Manton, the manager, visited me at the hospital several times. When I was getting better, I asked him if I'd be able to find me a job. He told me not to trouble myself, as the firm was not cold-hearted. I'd be right enough in my case. And then Mr. Manton stopped coming to see me, and the last time he did, he said he thought about asking the directors to give me a £50 note so I could go home to my friends in Ireland. Poor McGarry. He received rather better pay than other men because he was ambitious and took shifts, and when heavy work was to be done, he was the man who was picked to do it. And then the thing happened, and he went into the workhouse. And the alternative to the workhouse is to go home to Ireland and burden his friends for the rest of his life. I suppose the comment is superfluous. It must be understood that 
Efficiency is not determined by the workers themselves, but it's determined by the demand for labour. If three men seek one position, the most efficient men will get it. The other two, no matter how capable they may be, will nonetheless be inefficient. If Germany or Japan, the United States, should capture the entire world market for iron, coal and textiles, at once the English workers would be thrown idle by hundreds of thousands. Some would emigrate, but the rest would rush to their labour into the remaining industries. A great shaking up of the workers from top to bottom would result, and when equilibrium had been restored, the number of the inefficients at the bottom of the abyss would have been increased by hundreds of thousands. On the other hand, conditions remained constant, and all the workers doubling their efficiency, there would still be as many inefficients, though each inefficient were twice as capable as he had been, and more capable than many of the efficients had previously been, if that makes sense. When there were more men to work than there is work for men to do, just as many men are in the excess of work, there'll be inefficients. And as inefficients, they are doomed to lingering and a painful destruction. It shall be the aim of future chapters to show, by their work and manner of living, not only how the inefficients are weeded out and destroyed, but to show how inefficients are being constantly and wantonly created by the forces of industrial society as it exists today.